Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And welcome again to the Shear on Rashi, and we're up to Perak Kaf Vav, Pasuk Kaf Bet. So we're in the story of Yitzchak. We've said a few times that Yitzchak spends most of his time either being a son to his father when he's nearly sacrificed. In the next chapter, he's very much a father to his sons when his sons or one of his sons gets the birthright, which was intended for the other. And we have one chapter, chapter 26, which is about Yitzchak as Yitzchak, uh, as an individual. But even then, he seems to spend a lot of his time redoing what his father did. And what we're going to see tonight is a good example of that. So uh, last week we saw that Yitzchak, during the time of the famine, went to be in Gerar with the Pelishtim. He was very successful there in terms of growing lots of stuff and becoming very wealthy. Actually, I said last week that shouldn't be our definition of success, so I shouldn't have said that. And then he moves away and he dug a well um, in Pasuk um, Yutet, and the Philistines argued with him over that one. He dug another well in Pasuk Kaf Aleph. They argued him with him over that one. And now we're up to Pasuk Kaf Bet. And Pasuk Kaf Bet says, take Misham, he moved away from there. And he dug another well below Ravu Aleha. And they did not argue over it. So there's been three wells, just by the way, the Ramban, I mentioned this last week, compares this to the three Bate Mikdash, the first one which was destroyed, the second one which was destroyed, and the third one which will not be destroyed. So the third well, there was no argument over, it flourished, and he called its name Rachavot, which as well as being the name of an Israeli city, means broad space. And he said, Ki ata hirchiv Hashem lanu, because now Hashem has given us space. Ufarinu ba'aretz. Now Rashi has something to say on the word ufarinu. So we will look at Rashi. Rashi says ufarinu ba'aretz ketargumo v'nefush ba'ara. So the translation of farinu is v'nefush. Now Rashi is not telling us what the word means. Sometimes Rashi will refer us to the Targum because the Targum Ankelos, the Aramaic translation, because he wants to help explain to us the meaning of the word. But para, pari, is a very common word. It means to be fruitful. We use it throughout the Chumash. So Rashi is not explaining that the translation into Aramaic of farinu is venefush, so we can work out it means we will be fruitful. Rather, it seems to be that Rashi is concerned about the tense of ufarinu. He wants to make clear that it's in the future. It's not something that's happened already. And the nefush is explicitly in the future. Ufarinu is in the future because the vav is a vav conversive that turns the past into the future. But you could have read it as a vav which is a conjunction, um, a vav which just says Hashem has made us hirchiv. Uh, Hashem has given us space. Ufarinu ba'aretz and and then farinu is in the past. Now why can't farinu be in the past? Well, probably because if it had been in the past then Yitzchak would have included that in the name of the well. Look, if he'd been in the past, then Yitzchak would be saying two things has happened. And Hashem has given us space and we've been fruitful. And, but he only calls it by the name Rachavot. And he calls it the name Rachavot, which refers to one of the two things which he would be praising Hashem for. So it makes much more sense to say only one of the things has happened so far. That is, Ki Hashem Lanu. Hashem has given us the space, and that's why we call it Rachavot. And the other thing, which is not included in the name of the well, is because it hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. You could also say, depending how you understand Farinu, to be fruitful, as if it implies the usual use of the word uh, fruitful, as in lots of children. And Yitzhak hasn't had lots of children. He had two. He hasn't had any more. He's actually not going to have any more, but his descendants will have more. So you could also say that Yitzhak's uh, farinu, meaning we will be fruitful, cannot be we were fruitful, because in terms of demographics, he hasn't been fruitful. By the way, there is another girsa, another reading 
of our of the Unculus of the Aramaic translation. Some editions say not the Nefush, but Ufa Ufashanana, which means Hashem, He will make us fruitful. So it is likely that it's that Rashi's version of the Unculus was different from those that have that alternative word, Ufashanana. Uh, or it could possibly be that he was telling you, you might have that text in your copy of Unculus and it is wrong and it should be the Nefush. And that's why Rashi puts it into his commentary. I personally, I think that's unlikely. I don't think that's his style. So I prefer the first explanation to say there are two variant texts going around and the one that Rashi had and the one that Rashi uh, fits with Rashi's understanding is the Nefush. Okay, that's it for Pasa Kafbet. And that's actually the end of the story of the wells. And the next passage is, He went up from there to Beersheba. Remember that, by the way, that's going to be significant. And then in passage Kaf Dalad, no Rashi and Kaf Gimel, no Rashi and Kaf Dalad, but we'll read it nevertheless. Hashem appeared to him on that night. And he said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Do not be afraid. Because I am with you, and I will bless you, and I will multiply your descendants, because of Abraham, my servant. Again, one feels perhaps a little bit either questioning or sorry for Yitzchak that he gets all this merit, but never in the merit of Yitzchak himself. It's always because of Abraham. And again, Hashem seems to give the same message there. No Rashi, we'll move on to Kavhei. No Rashi there either, but it says, he built there an altar by Yikra B'Shem Hashem, and he called out in the name of God, and he pitched his tent there, and the servants of Yitzchak dug there a well. So I said, it, I said Pasuk Kaf uh, Bet was the end of the wells. Yeah, there's another well, there's another well in Kafe, but it seems to be quite different. Again, this isn't Rashi, and I haven't really got an explanation for this, I'm just pointing it out. There were three wells, and there was clearly a pattern. Each one had a name and each one had a story. The first story was conflict. The second story was conflict. And the third story was not no conflict. Here in Cafe, there's another well, but no name and no story. And anyway, perhaps it leads up to the next Pasuk, which is Pasuk Kavav, the Abimelech Halach Olav, Elav, sorry, Abimelech came or went to him, Migerar from Gerar. The Achuzat Mereehu, and well, I'll, I'll, I'll translate it very vaguely so we know what's going on. It's something to do with a group of friends, but Rashi's got a lot to say on that. Ufichol and Fichol, the captain of his army. And what's going to happen is they're going to ask for Yitzchak and Abimelech to make a covenant. But Rashi's got a lot to say about the words Achuzat Mereehu. And this is entirely grammatical, or if you like, literal. It's not uh, necessarily a very profound idea, but it's Rashi in the uh, Rashi explaining the words and explaining the grammar of the words. And he says, um, katargumo, like the Targum says, Vasiat me rachamohi. Now, the issue I'll tell you now is that the how to understand the mem of Meire Ehu, because it could be understood in two ways. It could mean the prefix me meaning from, or in the sense of, and it means a group from his friends, which as Rashi will spell out, and I'm sort of jumping the gun a little bit, but that means he's got lots of friends and he takes some of them. In which case the mem is a suffix. Or it could mean the mem is part of the root of the word. Meire Ehu means his friends. And achuzat Meire Ehu means the group of his friends. And Rashi will explain which one is correct and will explain the difference between the two. And he starts by bringing a proof from the Targum. And he says, Vasiat, a group, Meirachamehu. Now, um, you have to take it from me, and I have to take it from those that I read that said that clearly is the mem as a suffix from amongst his friends. Because in the Aramaic, if it meant his friends, it would not be spelt like that. It will be spelt differently. Um, now, interestingly enough, I said in the previous passage, but uh, previous moment, there, there were 
uh, more than one version of Onkelos. There is a different version of Onkelos, which Dafka doesn't have the mem there. And it just says the Siat Rachamohu, which means the group, not from his friends, but the group of his friends. But Rashi's text of the Onkelos, which is the one he's supporting, has the mem there. And according to the rules of Aramaic, and I'm a little bit out of my depth here, that mem must be read as a suffix. So he is using the Onkelos to prove but the mem is a suffix, and the phrase means a group from amongst his friends. As Rashi then translates it into Hebrew, siat may ohavav. And again, in this case, siat means group. Um, may, clearly in, in this context, the way Rashi's putting it, must be a suffix. Now, Rashi says, the yesh potrim meireehu mem miyasad hateva. There are those who explain the word meireehu, with the letter mem being part of the root of the word. So there is an alternative view, which Rashi is going to reject, that says achuzat um, meira'ehu means a group of his friends. Achuzat means group of, it's in the construct form. The tet indicates it means of, group of. And meira'ehu, according to this alternative view, which Rashi is mentioning before he rejects, the mem is part of the root of Meira Ehu, and it means friends. It doesn't mean from his friends, it means friends. Um, and he brings examples of how you do find words in, in, with that understanding, with the mem being part of the word. Kamo, shloshim mireim deshimsham. In Sefer Shoftim, so I don't have the reference here. Um, in Sefer Shoftim, um, Shimshon brings to his own wedding as his bridal party, if you like, or the groom's party, Shaloshim Meireim, 30 friends. Um, and if, if the mem is part of the word, in which case, in which case the word achuzat would be what in Rashi calls devuka, what we would call in English construct or in Hebrew grammar smichut, or in Latin genitive. It means group of. So, okay, Rashi's spent more time so far on the counter view. The mereim means friends. The mem is part of the word. It doesn't mean from. And achuzat means group of. So achuzat mereim, according to this alternative view, means group of friends. Rashi doesn't like that. Rashi says mereihu means from his friends. And he hasn't at this point explained how he understands achuzat. And the tet at the end of sorry the top at the end of Chuzat. That's coming later. Now there's a, so he prefers his reading because he thinks that's what the word means. He thinks the mem is not part of the root of Meira'ehu. But now he gives a a, a uh, interpretive reason why his explanation makes more sense. And he says, um, in relation to the alternative view, where Achuzat Meira'ehu would mean a group of friends, it, well, it means like this. It's not polite to speak about the kingship in this way, to say to not think the mem is there as a suffix, but to think the whole thing means a group of his friends. Because if so, what that would mean is all the group of his friends go with him. And he'd only have one group of friends. If you take away the mem, sorry, if you think the mem is part of the word and you think achuzat means group of, then you're saying all of his friends are there. Everyone who was a friend of the king came with him. And that is not derech eretz to say about a king. That implies that this poor king doesn't have many friends. He only has the number of friends that he can bring in one group. And that can't be the case. So he's not going to say that about a king. Um, I just read that. And he only had one group of friends. Because that's not a nice thing to say about a king. Therefore, you should explain it in the first way, i.e. to say that the mem is a suffix. It means a group from his friends, which means he had lots of friends and only some of them came with which is more polite to say about a king. By the way, who are the others who take the other view? Well, uh, the Rashbam does, 
the Kitava Kabbalah does, but most significantly in the Midrash, in Bereshit Rabbah, you find two views, which are the two views that Rashi expresses. So the view that Rashi rejects is actually based on a Tana in the Midrash, which is like pretty good. But Rashi nevertheless is saying, and maybe that's why Rashi goes out of his way to explain why he rejects that view and sticks with his view. Now, if you're with me, you'll know that there's something else that Rashi now has to answer. Because if Meira'ehu means from his friends, then Achuzat is not a construct. You can't say a group of from his friends. You just say a group from his friends. So it's not a group of. And if it's not a group of, why is there a taf on the end of Achuzat, making it Achuzat? which sounds like group of. So then he says, for al titma al hataf, and don't be surprised at the taf, shall achuzat, that's on the end of the word achuzat, for afal pisha ein teva smucha, even if it's not a construct word, even if it doesn't mean group of. He says, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Yesh dugmata for mikra, there are other examples like this, in scripture of where you have a sort of floating random tough on the end of a word, namely Ezrat Mitzar in Tehillim Perak Samach, a help against a foe. It doesn't mean a help of against a foe. That that tough doesn't make that word Ezrat into a smichut. And another one, perhaps even clearer, because there's no way it could be read as a smichut, Ushachurat Belomayayim. Uh, in Yeshaya, Nun Aleph, there's a Nevoah, there's a prophecy, but the Jewish people will be, in a good way, they'll be drunk, but not from wine. So, Ushachurat uh, means drunk. It doesn't mean drunk of. So there you have another taf on the end of a word, which is like not there to be a smichut. So similarly, Achuzat isn't a smichut. Okay, then Rashi has something to say about the word Achuzat. And he says, Lashen kvitzat ba'aguda shene'echazin yachad. It's an expression of a collection and a band which are held together. Now, the interesting thing is this. I didn't actually check, but I'm pretty sure we don't find a chuzat in this sense anywhere else in, in the Chumash. Um, certainly in the Mishnah and the Gemara, a chuzat is very often regarding about property. You, you have a chuzat karka. You have a possession of land. Uh, right now, off the top of my head, I don't know if you have that in the Chumash or not, but you certainly, I, I am confident that very rarely, if at all, do you have a Chuzat in terms of people. But so maybe that's why Rashi feels the need to explain how the word Achuzah, which really means take possession of or hold, can refer to a group of people. So he says it's a collection, it's a band who are held together. So that's how you can get from ownership to group through the idea of a, the group is held together like property is held. So that's probably why Rashi feels the need to explain that. Okay, there was lots of grammar there, but we can now go resume the story. Kaf Zayin. So after Avimelech and Fikol and a group of his friends or a group from amongst his friends turn up, Yitzchak. Yitzchak says to them, Madua batem elai, why have you come to me? and you hate me, and you sent me from you. Just to remind you, we learned a few pasukim earlier last week that as a result of um, Yitzchak's great wealth and the jealousy that that inspired amongst other people, he was sent away. So he now by Avimelech. So he now says to Avimelech, "Why are you being nice to me? Or why have you come to me? You hate me. What, what uh, possible business could we have?" And Abimelech says, Vayomru, and they, he, they said, Ra'o Ra'inu. Now, Ra'o Ra'inu is an interesting construct, it's, and it's a common construct in the Chumash. It is the use of the infinitive absolute, Ra'o, Ra'inu, followed by the active verb. Motumat um, is a very famous example. Motumat is translated as, he will surely die. Yumat is he will die. Mot is the infinitive. And in classical Hebrew, it has a use that doesn't exist in English. In English, we only have an infinitive as in to do something, to die, to give, to, to walk. Um, but in Hebrew, there is this um, infinitive absolute, which has a role, and we normally understand it as to give extra emphasis. So mot yumat, yumat is he will die, mot yumat he will surely die. 
And here, ra'ol re'inu, re'inu means we have seen, ra'ol re'inu would usually be translated as we have surely seen. But Rashi doesn't. We'll come back to that when we look at Rashi. But what have we seen? Ki haya Hashem imach, that Hashem was with you. And we say, let us say, tehina Allah, let there now be an oath, between the two of us, between us and between you, and let us make a covenant with you. And the covenant is going to be that you don't hurt us and we won't hurt you. We'll come back to that in the next verse. So what do we have in Rashi? So Rashi says on the words we have seen in your father, we have seen in you. Okay, a few things to say. First of all, historical context. Avimelech, possibly the same Avimelech, or maybe a king with the same name, also hosted Avraham in the land of the Philistim and made a covenant with Abraham. If you look in Perak Kaf Aleph, Pasuk Kaf Bet Kaf Gimel, you find almost exactly the same thing. That Avimelech and Fikol, uh, no bunch of friends this time, came to Abraham and said, let us make, uh, God is with you, let's make a covenant with you. And they did. And now Avimelech and Fikol come and say pretty much the same thing to Yitzchak. So Rashi straight away says that the Ra'e is not just we have surely seen, but there's two types of seeing here. One is the seeing of the father. We saw this with Abraham and we're seeing this with you. The next thing to say is why is Rashi deviating from what he usually, but not always, usually does, which is to let this doubled verb pass without comment. He certainly doesn't comment on every motumat, he will surely die. There are times when he does, at the beginning of the second paragraph of the Shema, Shemoa is the is the infinitive, Tishma'u, if you will hear. We normally translate that, as you will surely hear. Rashi's got something to say there. But generally, he says, you know what? It's one of those infinitive absolutes. I don't need to comment. But there seems to be a principle. The way some of the commentators of Rashi say is, if there's a need to expound it, you expound it. And this brings me to the third thing I want to say on this. As we will see, in both the simple meaning of the verse and further with Rashi's comment, that Avimelech is very clearly referring back to what happened with Abraham and suggesting, more than suggesting, that there's a repetition in the case of Yitzchak. So it really fits for Rashi to say at the beginning of Avimelech's words, he's talking both about what they saw with Abraham and what they see with Yitzchak. Hence, Rashi's understanding of Ra'o Ra'inu we have seen with your father, we have seen with you. Um, and there's another thing to say, sorry, I'm just looking at my notes here. Um, there's interesting that he, the Ra'ay Ra'inu ki haya Hashem imach. The haya, even as I say it, it sounds a bit, it, it jars because we wouldn't expect them to be in the past tense. We have seen, says Avimelech, that Hashem was with you. Now, you could read it adequately and saying, look, you were in our town, you were very lucky with your harvest, um, things seemed to go well for you, Hashem was with you. Right now, you're living in Beersheba, we don't know if things are still going all right for you, all we know is what was with you. But that's not really the normal style. It will be much more appropriate and consistent with the way we see similar phrases in Chumash to say Hashem is with you. The very fact that they're talking in the past is perhaps another pointer to Rashi's comment that we're talking about what's gone on in the previous generation as well as what's going on now. So they say, so this na, by the way, is best translated as now, which again fits with the way Rashi's explaining what's going on. We have had a Brit with Abraham. Now let's make one with you. Um, and they say, let's make an Allah. Now this phrase is very cumbersome. Beinotenu means between the two of us. 
And then it says, between us and between you. There's clearly repetition there. If it means between the two of us, why do you need uh, or to put it another way, if you've got why do you need So Rashi says very clearly, and this sort of ties together everything I've said in the last few minutes. Tahina Allah Benotenu Vagomer, Ha Allah Asher Benotenu Mime Avicha, the oath, Allah means oath, which was between us from the days of your father, Tahi Gam Ata Benenu Ovenecha. Let it be now also between us and between you. So Rashi, this probably what we're saying now drives the previous Rashi about Ra'inu, we saw the father, we saw you. Now, according to Rashi, Abimelech, by this dual expression, Benotenu, followed by Benenu or Benecha, is explicitly saying the oath which was with Abraham should be with you as well. Now, by the way, I, I mentioned, if you look in Perak Kaf Aleph, Pasuk Kaf Aleph, Kaf Bet, Kaf Gimel, you will see um, the oath is pretty much identical. So it's really, um, it doesn't take Rashi to say that what's happening now is a repeat or part two of what happened there. Which, by the way, raises the question. If you look at the oath there, it was that we shouldn't, Abraham and Abimelech shouldn't hurt each other, nor should our children, nor should our grandchildren. In which case, there's already an oath between Yitzchak and Abimelech, because Yitzchak is Abraham's son, who's included in the previous oath. So we also can ask why, according to Rashi, and this seems to be a very good reading of the Pasuk, is Abimelech saying, the oath that we had with Abimelech, with Abraham, we should have with you. It's very strange because he already has it with Yitzchak precisely because of the oath that they have with Abraham. So I can suggest two answers. One is that they did have the oath, but they broke it, they being Avimelech and his crew and the Pelishtim, by driving Yitzchak out of town and by denying him that hospitality, they broke the oath. So they're now coming to remake the oath. Now, if you see it this way, it's a bit of a chutzpah. They say, you know, we had this great oath with your father, Abraham. It so happens we broke it, but let's do it all over again with you. That's one approach. The Maharal says something slightly different. The Maharal says this was not the same Abimelech. This is Abimelech, son of Abimelech. Confusingly, the word Abimelech means my father is king, so apply to anybody who's a son of a king. And there's a sort of suggestion that just like Paro is the official title of the king of Egypt, so Abimelech is the title of the king of the Pelishtim. If so, then when Abimelech, the son, asks for the same oath as Abimelech, the father, what he means is it should go down to Abimelech, the son's grandson, which means one generation further than the original oath went. The original oath went down to the grandson of the Abimelech, the father. Now Abimelech, the son, wants the oath to go down to the level of Abimelech, the son's grandson, i.e. one generation further. So that would explain why he needs a new oath. It's, it's an oath which is like a adding to the previous oath, but it's not the same as the previous oath because it adds to it. Okay. Uh, one of the lights of Zoom is um, I can see myself talking and I've got all my texts on the page, on the screen around me, but the challenge of talking on Zoom is there's no feedback, no feedback whatsoever. So all I have to do is I can see some of your smiling faces, which is nice, but please do feel free to interrupt or to put your digital hand up or probably interrupts better because I might not even see the hand. So please do feel that you know, this is part of an interactive shift. Okay, after that, I will carry on with Pasuk Kavtet. So what do they say in the oath, uh, in the details? They say, Im imanu ra'a. If you do with us evil, lo naga anucha, just as we did not touch you, and just as we have done with you only good, and we sent you away in peace. Ata, you, ata, now, that's with an ayin, Baruch Hashem, you are blessed of Hashem. Okay. Uh, by the way, I think the chutzpah sort of um, spills out here 
They're saying, we haven't done anything to you. We've just been really good to you. We sent you away nicely. I, I don't think you can read that without hearing the irony. We banished you, but we did it in a nice way. So you've got nothing to complain about. But actually, that the, I'm part, I, I say that partly with respect to the Rashi that we're about to read. Rashi on the word, lo naga anucha, we did not touch you, says Rashi, kasha amarnu lech lacha me'imanu. When we said to you, go away from amongst us. That is when they sent uh, Yitzchak away. And that was in Pasuk Tet Zayin. So now, according to Rashi, when Abimelech says, we didn't touch you, it's in particular relationship to, uh, just lost the place, into the time when we sent you away. Why does Rashi have to say that? So I think there are two possible answers or two things that um, I've seen or can think of. Number one, um, it's sort of what's the Havamina? What else might you have thought? When Abimelech says, we've been really good and we didn't touch you, um, there must have been a time when you might have thought it might have been justifiable for them to touch, as in to hurt Yitzchak, but they didn't. So in other words, to say, you know, say, we've been really good, we didn't hurt you, is, is not really a very high bar. It sounds like you, you should be thankful for us that we didn't hurt you, but that, that doesn't really make sense if Abimelech is trying to say we've done such good for you. So Rashi says there was a time when you might have thought we might have hurt you, or you the reader, or you Yitzchak, might have thought that we might have hurt you. Now, obviously, we feel it was fair enough that we had to banish you from our place. But even when we banished you, we didn't hurt you. So that explains why we need to say that we didn't hurt you, why you might have thought we had hurt you. Even when we were banishing you, we didn't hurt you. But another thing which I realize is not really a totally separate idea, but it's just another way of looking at it. When Rashi, well, sorry, when Abimelech goes on to say, Asinu imacha rak tov, we've only done good to you. So you would have thought that if we've only done good to you, then obviously that includes we didn't hurt you. In which case, why do we need both? Why do we need to say we didn't hurt you and we've only done good to you? Because one does subsume the other. So the answer is, says Rashi, that when we sent you away, it would have been reasonable, normal, possible that we did touch you or we did actually hurt you because that's part of the process of sending away. So two things. Number one, we've only done good to you. And number two, even in the time when we might have done not so good to you, we also didn't do bad to you. That's why Rashi explains, when we said, um, go away from us. Now, uh, Rashi on the word, Ata, you, uh, there is a girsa, there is a reading that Rashi's commenting on the word Ata with an ayin. That seems to be incorrect. Rashi's talking on the word Ata, you, with an aleph, which means you. Uh, so, Gam Ata, Ose, Lanu, Kamo, came. Also, you should do with, like us, similarly. The simple problem here, and I think it is a simple problem, is why do you need the word Ata? Now, um, uh, pronouns in Hebrew are funny things for a number of reasons. One is because they're usually consumed within the verb. Katavti means I wrote. You don't have to say ani katavti because the T on the end of katavti does it for you. Which means if you do say ani katavti, then you are emphasizing that it was me who did the writing and not someone else. You who wrote ani katavti. That's what ani katavti means. So when the word ata pops up in the middle of the Pasuk, and it doesn't really need to be there because it's already been covered with if you do bad to us. So it's obviously that they're talking to you, to Yitzchak. So why do we need the word ata there just before the end of the Pasuk? And the answer is Rashi is pointing out that that's really the end, the other half of the um, of the Brit, of the covenant. The covenant's two-sided. We haven't done anything bad to you. Ata, full stop, just one word. Ata means, says Rashi, you don't do anything bad to us. So that's the reason why that the word ata is put there. Or you can say that Rashi is telling us that that's the other half of the covenant. Um, just by the way, Rashi doesn't talk about Baruch Hashem at the end of the passage, but I'll just mention to you, why is there Baruch Hashem? So the Mephoshim of Rashi do try to fit it in with Rashi saying, the Maharal says Baruch Hashem is reference to Yitzchak. 
It's who is, it's a nice way of talking about Yitzchak. You now are Baruch Hashem. You are Mr. Baruch Hashem. You are Mr. Blessed by Hashem. The uh, Mizrahi says, no, Baruch Hashem means you have the ability to fulfill the covenant that we're asking you to make. Because you are blessed by Hashem, therefore you do not need to fight us. Moving on to Pasuk Lamut, Vayas Lahem Mishta Vayochlu Vayishtu. They um, made a feast and they ate and they drank. Pasuk Lamud Aleph, Vayashkimo Baboke, Vayashabu. They got up in the morning and they made an oath or they made a promise, Ishla Achiv, each person to his brother, in other words, Yitzchak to Abimelech. And Yitzchak sent them away. And they went from him in peace. Pasuk Lamud Bet. Uh, Rashi is very quiet in this Pasuk, as you can see, in this Perak, really, or this section of the Perak. And it was on that day the servant of Yitzchak came. And they told him, about the well which they had dug, the Yomrulo Matsanu Mayim. And they said to him, We have found water. Rashi doesn't say anything. I'm going to use my usual cop out here. This is a Rashi share, so I'm not going to talk about wells. But as you can see, the wells are sort of the spine of this story with Yitzchak. He has the three wells which are named. They dug a well, there was no comment. Here they dug a well, there's no story, there's no name, but obviously they're excited to find water. And that is, and I promise this, the end of the story of the wells. The last well mentioned is there in Lamad Bet, and they said, we have found water. If you want to connect that to the departure of Imelech and Yitzchak now being entirely on his own, you can. Pasuk Lamad Gimel. Vayikra ayota shiva, and he called it shiva, Rashi will say what that means. Alkein shem ha'ir be'er sheva ad hayom hazeh. Therefore, the name of the city is Be'er Sheva until this day. And Rashi says, Shiva al shem habrit. Why Shiva? Not because of the number seven, which the word Shiva could mean, but Shiva as in Shavua, as in promise, as in the Brit. So Rashi is telling you where the word Shiva comes from. It means the covenant. And that's why Yitzchak called it Be'er Sheva. Any questions on the fact that Yitzhak called this place Be'er Sheva? Rob, can I ask, rather than the name Be'er Sheva, why does it, why does some sukkim or why does some places say, like Ad Hayom Hazer, obviously it's written here, some places not. Is there any um, discussion about that anywhere? Um, I'm sure there is. Um, it's usually understood until, um, uh, until today when we're reading it. Um, I mean, I think the Ibn Ezra wants to say that Adayam means until Moshe gave the Torah, and it's like up to the time of Moshe. Um, but uh, the more, I suppose, Chazal type approach is to say it means up to today when we're reading it, up to Sivan Tovshin Pei Aleph when we're reading it today, and it's still called Be'er Um More than that, right now, I can't say, or I don't have it at my hand. But I'm more interested in the question that I asked, and I'm waiting for somebody to, to shout out. What's the problem with Yitzchak calling this place Be'er Sheva? Ariella. Well, I'm gonna guess here. I mean, he, he calls it something and then it says, and therefore we call it something else. Is that what? No, 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 all right, okay. I'll stop asking fishing questions. Um, <laughs> it's true, he, call, well, he calls it Shiva. He calls the, no, he calls the place Shiva, so, they, and they found a well, so it's the well of Shiva. So that's why he calls it Shiva, and the well is called Be'er Sheva. Now, my question is, it's already called Be'er Sheva. How do I know it's already called Be'er Sheva? Well, to be honest, I didn't realize how strong this question is until just today, because I thought it was already called Be'er Sheva, because Abraham called it Be'er Sheva. In Peret Kaf Aleph, Pasuk Lamad Aleph, Abraham calls it Be'er Sheva. But... Pass Look Kaf at, Gimel as well. Thank you. That's exactly right. Look at Kaf Gimel. Vayal Misham Be'er Sheva. Yitzchak went to Be'er Sheva. So it's very strange that Yitzchak gives it the name Be'er Sheva in Pasuk Lamad Gimel. So I saw three answers, not none of them Rashi, but I'll mention them. 
according to the Rashbam, it's a different place from Beersheba before, which I suppose um, means it's a different place from where Yitzchak went to. He went to Beersheba in Lamad Gimel, and now he's gone somewhere else, and they dug a different well, and Abimelech comes to him in this different place, which he calls Beersheba. The Ramban says that the well was dug twice, and therefore it was named twice. It was dug by Abraham, and this is one of the wells that the Palishtim stopped up and Yitzhak re-dug. Now, by the way, that's not absolutely, it's not explicit or even necessarily implicit. It said earlier, we saw this last week, that Yitzhak re-dug the wells that Abraham had uh, dug and the, uh, the Palishtim had filled in. It's not clear that this refers to the wells dug right at the end of the story. In fact, it seems to me, the Ramban, I'm not disagreeing with the Ramban, but it seems to me that now these wells um, particularly the one that we've just had is a brand new well and is not connected with the ones that Abraham dug. But the Ramban doesn't read it like that. The Ramban says Abraham dug the well and he called it Beersheba. Yitzchak, the, the Palishtim filled it in. Yitzchak re-dug the well and he recalled it Beersheba. The Meshechachma says very nicely that Abraham called it Beersheba because of the oath that Abraham made with Abimelech. But as we said earlier, we can say that Abimelech has broken the oath. So that's why there needs to be a new oath. And there is a new oath. So in honor of the new oath, there's a renaming of Beersheba. So there was Beersheba, but the oath was canceled. So it no longer really should be called Beersheba. And now the oath is remade. It's recalled Beersheba. Okay, that is the end of the story of Yitzchak and the Plishtim and the Wells. And now we start a new story. Now, incidentally, I've just noticed again, this is one of those times where the chapter divisions, which is not Jewish, it was invented by a 12th century British priest um, whose name escapes me for the moment, but the chapter divisions don't always follow the divisions uh, which Chazal put in, uh, or the, uh, actually are in the Torah itself, and they don't actually for always follow our understanding of when there's a change of subject. Um, there is a petucha stuma, um, a closed break, which means a sort of small paragraph division at the end of Pasuk Lamad Gimel and another one at the end of Pasuk Lamad Hay. But the chapter divisions take the one at the end of Lamad Hay to be a big break and that starts a new chapter. Um, but certainly from the point of view of the subject matter, the subject matter changes here in Pasuk Lamad Dalet and Lama Dalet and Lama Hay very much are the introduction to what comes next. So I would suggest there should be a chapter division here at the end of Lama Gimel. Anyway, what happens in Lama Dalet? What happens in Lama Dalet is this. Vayahi Esau ben Arbi'im Shana. Esau was 40 years old. Vayekach Isha, and he took a wife. Et Yehudit bat Be'eri, Hachiti. Actually two wives, because the first one was Yehudit, the daughter of Be'eri, the Chittite. And the second one was Basmat, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And we're going to see in Lamad Hay that these wives were not very good. But before we get to that, Rashi has something to say on the words Ben Arbeim Shana. Esav Haya Nimshal Lachazir. Esav is compared or is metaphorically represented by a pig. Now, um, okay, Shneemar, as it says, a pig from the forest will ravage. That's a posik in Tehillim. Now, if you look at Rashi in that posik in Tehillim, Perak Pet, uh, um, Rashi says, based on the vision of Daniel, who saw four beasts, um, which we know represent the four exiles, and the fourth beast was the most hideous and the most scary, and that represents the Roman exile. Um, uh, it's the way Chazal explained it. And it's the most scary of them all because the Roman exile has lasted longer than the Babylonian or the Persian or the Greek exile. Um, and it's a beast that tramples. Now, it doesn't uh, say in Daniel, but it's a pig. But Rashi there in Tehillim, on, this, on the passage that Rashi, our Rashi here has just quoted, uh, compares the pig in the, uh, in the forest who, tramp, who ravages in the Pasuk in Tehillim to the fourth beast, which is seen in Daniel's vision, which is also ravaging and trampling. And that is Rome, which is Edom, which is Esau. So that is the link 
or it's a little bit tortuous, but that's the link. And the key thing is the Rashi on the Pasuk in Tehillim that links the fourth beast, which is Edom, which is Esau, to the pig, which is being referred to here, which reads Rashi here, our Rashi, to say that Esau is compared to a pig. Now, what's this got to do with our Pasuk? Let's go on. Now, uh, the significance of the pig at this point is not that the wild boar does all this ravaging as the uh, one in the Pasuk, uh, in the Pasuk in Tehillim does, but just the fact that it's a pig. And what about a pig? This pig, when it lies down, it stretches forth its hooves. Lomar, to say, I'm going to say, as if to say, that I am Tahor, I am a kosher animal. What's the story? So the pig has cloven hooves, uh, which is one of the two signs of a kosher animal. The other side is to chew the cud. The pig doesn't chew the cud. But when a pig puts its trotters out and you can see its cloven hooves, it's as if in the eyes of this marshal, the pig is trying to say, look, I am kosher. I'm not really, but I'm pretending to be kosher. So the pig, which is um, wild, which is destructive, is compared to the fourth beast of Daniel's vision, which is a reference to the um, exile of Edom, which is Aesop. So that's a connection between the pig and Aesop. But says Rashi um, that the pig is also like Aesop because the pig tries to pretend that it's kosher. We haven't seen how Aesop does that. We'll see that in a minute. By the way, Rashi in Tehillim says something slightly different. Rashi in Tehillim also says that the pig looks like it's kosher, but his example is not the one we're about to see, but because Esau had zchut avot, Esau had the merit of being the son of Yitzchak and the grandson of Abraham, so Esau is a little bit meritorious. And that, says Rashi in Tehillim, is the pig trying to show that it's a little bit kosher. But Rashi here says something different. He says, so how, what, what we're waiting for, what I hope I've led you up to, is how Aesop is showing, is pretending that he's kosher, as evidenced in this verse. And the point is this. Kach, elu goslin v'chomsin, umarim atzmam kasherin. These are like people, so this isn't, uh, uh, Yitzchak, sorry, this isn't Aesop yet. This is people generally who steal, and steal with violence, and proclaim that they are kosher. They're like pigs who try to pretend that they are worthy and righteous when they're absolutely not. Kol mem shana haya esav sad nashim mitachat ba'alehen uma'aneh otam. For 40 years, Esav would literally trap women from under their husbands, i.e. he would seduce married women, uma'aneh otam and afflict them. The way he treated them would be a type of affliction. So Esau has shown 40 years, according to Rashi, of utter disrespect for marital fidelity. And now at the age of 40, ben Mem, now that he's 40, Omar, he said, Abba ben Mem Shana, Nasa Isha. My father, when he was 40, he married his wife, Af Anichain, I will do the same. So why does Rashi go into this whole story? Um, there's a very simple answer, because there's a detail in this verse which is, seems to be totally extraneous. What is that detail? Benji, you're nodding. Do you want to why do we care that Esau is 40 years old? Why do we need to know that Esau is 40 years old? How many other people do we know the age when they get married? Um, I suggest none. Well, Esau, Yitzchak we do. Yitzchak, we're told, was married at 40, at the beginning of Parsha Toldot. And the Rashi explained that the reason we told that is so is to compare that he gives his children are born when he's 60. So there's a 20 year gap, uh, which explains because uh, according to Rashi, Rivka was three when she married Yitzchak. She becomes, they wait 10 years until she's ready to have children. And then another 10 years while she doesn't have children. And then they dove into Hashem. So we needed to know that Yitzchak was 60 when they were born and 40 when he got married. But we don't need to know that Esau is 40 when he got married. There is absolutely no reason for the Torah to tell us, unless it's telling us that he's trying to do the same as Yitzchak, that he's trying to copy Yitzchak. And that fits with Rashi's bigger picture 
that Esau is the one who pretends to be righteous when he's really not. Now, we don't know from the pastor that Esau was seducing married women and afflicting them. Rashi did mention that on the day that he came in from um, when he was hungry, and that was the day that Yitzhak, uh, sorry, Yaakov did the deal with the birthright, that he committed a whole bunch of heinous sins, um, including Gilead Riot. I think Rashi said that. Um, but according to Rashi here, that Aesop is a regular mistreater of women and uh, ignoring of marital bonds. So it's particularly chutzpah for him to say, I'm going to be as righteous as my father and get married to, in, the, in the matter of Hilchat Ishut, in the matter of marriage and Kiddushin, I'm going to do the same at the age of 40. By the way, this idea of Aesop trying to look from is something we've seen before and occurs in other places as well. Where did we see it? Because Rashi said on when Esau was Kitsayed Papiv, he had trappings in his mouth. He would use his mouth to trap Yitzchak and make out to Yitzchak that he was super prum by saying, how do you take Maiser from Teven and Melach? How do you take Maser, tithes from straw and from salt? And that's an example of Esau trying to look righteous when really he is not. It's interesting that the Gemara in Avodah Zarah, Dafet Omad Bet, tells a story that in the future, the Romans, descendants of Esau, will say, look at what we did for the Jewish people. We built bathhouses, we built markets, we built roads, just so the Jewish people could study Torah. And Hashem replies, you fools, don't you think that I know that you did all those things for yourselves? You built bathhouses, to put prostitutes in, sorry, but that's what it says, you built markets and you built roads just for your own benefit. So don't give me any of this, we did this for the sake of the Jewish people rubbish. It's that same idea that the Gemara brings, that Rashi brings here, which is probably where he got it from, that Esau and his descendants are inherently trying to say, look how good we are, look how close we are to our twin brother, the Jewish people, Look how similar we are in our refinement and our culture and how much we help the Jewish people when it's all not true. And I think it's an interesting idea. And I think perhaps um, Rome is seen as this mighty and worthy and, 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 and uh, cultured empire that it's important that Chazal are telling us it's important to know that uh, I was just going to say it's all a sham. I'll take out the word all and for reasons I'll explain in a minute, but it's a sham that a, really Aesop is doing it for himself. Really, the pig is not kosher. It's all a pretense. I said it all again. Uh, the reason I, I'm hesitating about the word all, and I think this is a very um, important issue for we of what might be called the modern orthodox camp. And to part of to be modern orthodox is to learn wisdom wherever it is to be found and to look at wisdom in non-Jewish sources and say, yes, that can teach me something. Um, but when it comes to Edom, which is the main non-Jewish society around us, at least in the West, it's very, very important to know where is the reality and where is the pretense? Where is the things which are absolutely not relevant to us as Jews, which are actually aimed sometimes even against us, even though it might deceptively look otherwise. In other words, I think for us in the modern Orthodox camp, it's particularly important to know um, where to draw the line, which, which part of the animal is kosher and which part of the animal is not kosher. Others would say the whole animal is not kosher. We can't go near any of it. Don't be misled by the hooves. The whole animal is trafe and evil and tummy. Our approach is not necessary to say that, but that's why it's a much bigger challenge for us to know which parts are tahor and which parts are tummy. Now, there's actually one more pasuk which only has five little words but there's quite a bit of Rashi on it, and it's quite a complicated Rashi. So rather than Rashi in the next four minutes, I think I will draw a close there. I will say thank you very much, all those who are listening on the podcast, all those who are with me virtually. Uh, I hope that you learned as much as I did, and we will see you again next week. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you. Rabbi. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Rabbi.